As of late, we have been doing a sermon series I've entitled The Need of a Prophet, and we are continuing that this morning, uh, following where we picked left off last week in 1 Kings chapter 20, rereading chapter, verse 22, and then finishing through the rest of the chapter. The words will be on the screen behind me, or if you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, that can be found starting on the very bottom of page number 355, carrying over into the next page. So again, on uh, page 355, 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 22. This is after the initial battle between Ahab and the Syrian king Ben-Hadad. It then says, oh, when God provided a great victory, then the prophet came near to the king of Israel and said to him, come. Strengthen yourself and consider well what you have to do. For in the spring, the king of Syria will come up against you. And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, Remove the kings, each from his post, and put commanders in their places. And muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the people of Israel were mustered and were provisioned and went against them, the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats, but the Syrians filled the country. The man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys, Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite one another seven days. Then on the seventh day, the battle was joined, and the people of Israel struck down the Syrians, a hundred thousand foot soldiers, in one day. And the rest fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell upon 27,000 men who were left. Ben-Hadad also fled and entered an inner chamber in the city. And his servants said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waist and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please, let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. 
So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a soldier turned and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any mean he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And the prophet said to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, and therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. The king of Israel went on to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I know that in our midst, as members of our church, we've got a few people that have played the role of coaches for different sports. And while I know that any loss is a frustrating loss for a coach, the most devastating of losses are losses that happen after you've built up a good lead and it looks like you're going to win the game, but in the last moments, you end up blowing that lead and losing the game. Compound that with the fact that if, if the reason why that game is lost is because one of the players did not do what they were instructed to do, and that was the cause of losing the game, well, you would just be furious and frustrated as a coach. What a way to lose. You had the game all wrapped up, but then since one of your players didn't listen to your instructions, the whole game was lost. It didn't matter if you were doing great beforehand if the end of the game was an L. Well, as much as that's the case for sporting events, obviously the stakes are that much higher and the importance that much more when it comes to war. You can win a battle here or there or be victorious in the different skirmishes, but again, none of that will matter if ultimately the war is lost. So with every battle, you have to refocus yourself and make sure that you are engaged. Well, if that is true for sports and for war, I think there is an application for our spiritual lives as well that I'll expand upon when we get to the end of our study of what we've been looking at here in 1 Kings 20. As I said, we began this text last week looking at this battle here, uh, surprised by the fact that God would allow the wicked King Ahab to win any battles. And we suggested that that was a gift of God's grace, an opportunity for God again to demonstrate his power, for Ahab to recognize it and to turn to him. 
In fact, not only was that the promise of the victory of this battle, but we highlighted last week that that was the whole purpose for giving Ahab this victory. God said that it would be done so that you, Ahab, would know that I am the Lord. And when we ended last week, the question of whether or not that purpose would be fulfilled was sort of left looming in the air. Would this victory draw Ahab's heart back toward the Lord? Another thing looming over us from last week was what was going to happen next. Because we finished last week in reading verse 22, where that prophet that had promised victory came back to Ahab and said, you better be prepared because Ben-Hadad is going to come back in the spring. And so Ahab did take the few months to prepare, but what we learn in our text for this morning is that while Ahab was preparing, so were the Syrians and so was Ben-Hadad. Devastated, embarrassed by their recent loss in battle, they decided that they had to avenge themselves and uh, get back against the Israelites, and so they made some changes. They replaced the 32 kings with 32 seasoned commanders, people who knew military work and were going to be prepared. They rebuilt the army that had been lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot. But they also relocated the battle. They assumed that the reason why they had lost was not because they were outnumbered. Clearly, that wasn't the issue. It was because their gods of the Israelites were the gods of the hills. They had power there, so they were foolish in engaging in a battle there. If we relocate to the plains, well, then the gods of the Israelites will be less powerful and therefore the Syrians will be able to win this victory. In making that statement, they were very clear, something I've highlighted often when we look at these Old Testament battles. This was not just seen as a military engagement, but this was seen as a battle between the gods. Where your gods had power, they were reigned, and, and where, where they had uh, strengths and, and, and extra powers, that was what you had to, talk, uh, to, to try to exploit the weaknesses of the other gods. And whoever came out on top, it was seen that that god was more victorious. And so their thinking about God was if we relocate the battle, then we're going to be victorious. Obviously, a faulty way of thinking. However, I just want to pause there very quickly and suggest that as soon as we identify the flaw of the Syrians in thinking that God is a limited God, powerful in only certain places and under certain circumstances, that sometimes we are guilty of falling into that same kind of Syrian way of thinking about God. That we assume that uh, since there's 7 billion people on this planet, God doesn't really care what me, one person's going to do in this moment. He probably doesn't even notice it's no big deal. Or when we pray to God, we pray for certain things, assuming God's interested and, and concerned about those things, but we don't pray for others because eh, God doesn't really worry about those things. Or again, maybe we think that God is a God who really wants to know where you are on Sunday mornings at 10 o'clock, but is far less concerned about what happens on Monday mornings or Saturday nights 
And so we assume that God is limited, and we can fall into that Syrian way of thinking when the testimony of Scripture throughout is that our God is not a limited God in any way, shape, or form. He has just as much power in the hills as he does in the plains. He has concern over all things, and there was nowhere where he is not, and no thing that happens that he is not aware of and controlling. Well, even if their theology is majorly flawed, from an earthly view, the Syrians still have a huge advantage in this battle. They are refocused. They have rebuilt their armies. They are far outnumbering the Israelites. No longer are they going to allow them be, themselves to be distracted by their drinking as they were in the last battle. From an earthly perspective, Israel once again is in deep, deep trouble against this huge army. But, once again, before the battle is fought, a prophet comes to Ahab with a similar message from last time, and he says in verse 28 that we have once again this great promise for the wicked Ahab. I will give all this great multitude into your hand. But more importantly, we get a restatement of the purpose of that promise. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Only a great God who was not limited by geography or by topography, only that great God would allow or be able to win such an incredibly overwhelming battle. But he does. This is exactly what ends up happening. The two little flocks of goats, the Israelite army, stand against the, the myriad of other troops. And on that day, a hundred thousand of them fall by the sword. And then in a scene reminiscent of Jericho, 27,000 more die when the walls of the city of Fek fall upon them. And their king Ben-Hadab is trapped. God is clearly at work once again. God is doing great things for his people, the Israelites, and he wins an incredible victory over these overwhelming odds. And then in a last-ditch effort, Ben-Hadad and those with him decide to throw themselves at the mercy of King Ahab. And Ahab responds to his efforts. Instead of finishing the battle and declaring the final victory, instead of adding one more, the most important of casualties to the hundreds of thousands that had already fallen, Ahab receives Ben-Hadad into his very chariot. He strikes up a new covenant with him, and then he lets him go on his way. We're never told why Ahab does this to Ben-Hadad, so we're left to guess, but clearly this was more than just a, a missed opportunity. And it seems missed because of Ahab's ego. He desires to do what he thinks is going to prosper him in these good relationships with the powerful kings in the region. He's more concerned about how other people are going to be thinking about him and, and how they might relate to him in the future. And so he chose to just move forward with this plan rather than even asking what God's desire might be for this situation. But it doesn't take long before we learn what God's desire for this situation was. 
The scene continues with another prophet who gets ready to meet Ahab by telling another person near him to hit me. But the man refuses to hit the prophet. And so the result is that a lion is going to come and eat the man, and he does, instantly eating and killing the man. Now, I can't just skip over that part of the story. It's a, it's a crazy detail. And it also, isn't it really harsh that God would, would kill a man or send a lion to kill a man just because he wasn't going to punch a prophet when he asked him to? But in this strange scene, we see so much of the point of this passage and indeed much of the struggle that Ahab has had throughout his reign. Because the key to this text is the fact that it is made abundantly clear that this command to strike the prophet is the very word of God. This is God's command for this man. But despite the clarity of this being God's command, this fellow decides that he's not going to listen to it. And that is not a small thing. Again, as we highlighted in chapters 17 through 19 of 1 Kings, if God is the one true God, the God who wins victory on Mount Carmel, if he is, as he's demonstrated, a God who is powerful both in the hills and on the plains and is in control of all things, then when that God speaks with clarity, that is not a suggestion, that is not an opinion, that is not an option that you consider, but it is a command from your general. And so, when you disobey the clear word of God, the punishment for disobedience is what it always has been, death. And that's what this fellow learns. But in learning that, we learn that if this man is not going to get away with ignoring the command to strike this prophet, then there's no way that Ahab is going to get away with ignoring God's word. And there's no way that we will either. So once that man is gone, the prophet turns to another companion and he asks him to strike him. And this guy does a really good job. He hits him hard and he wounds him. And in doing that, we find out why the prophet or why the Lord had instructed this in a scene very similar to when the prophet Nathan confronts David and his actions with Uriah and Bathsheba. The prophet puts on a guise and he pretends like he is a soldier that has been wounded in battle, that during the battle was given care of an enemy combatant, told to guard him, and that if he loses this combatant, well, then he will lose his very life or have to pay the ridiculous fee of a talent of silver, impossible for an average soldier to be able to pay. And so when he sees Ahab, he says, Ahab, as the king, as the judge of our nation, what should happen to me that I lost track of this man? And now all of a sudden, the king with the merciful reputation decides very quickly that there is no mercy for this man, that he has pronounced his own judgment, and that he will have to die if he cannot afford the sum. And then as soon as Ahab pronounces this judgment, the prophet reveals himself and lets Ahab know that the judgment that Ahab has just pronounced is the judgment he's pronounced against himself. 
that he was the one that had let the man go, that Ben-Hadad was not Ahab's prisoner to just decide what to do with, but he was the Lord's prisoner. And God was the one who had delivered the whole nation of Syria into the hand of the Israelites, but Ahab had let go out of his hand the man that God had devoted to destruction. And because of that, Ahab's life would now be forfeit. But in that warning, there's another opportunity here for Ahab. Another opportunity to recognize his wrongdoing, to repent and ask the God of mercy for forgiveness upon himself. But instead, once again, this is about Ahab. And instead of realizing his position in relationship with God, he walks away vexed and sullen. How could God decide that what Ahab had done was the wrong thing to do in this situation. And whatever victory should have been celebrated, whatever opportunity for Ahab to recognize that God had granted the Israelites an incredibly unexpected and overwhelming victory in this situation, all of that is lost because Ahab again worried far more about himself and how he is viewed, goes off. The battle is won, but the war is lost. It's a pretty incredible story with a lot of interesting details, much of which I didn't even have time to get into, but it also then leads to that common question. What does that have to say about God and our relationship with him today? Does this have anything to instruct us in our lives? And as we wrap up, let me highlight two things. Two things especially to focus on as we prepare to approach this communion table. First, let's go back to that lesson that was learned from that man who refused to listen to God's word to strike the prophet. And let me restate the point that it is no small matter to ignore the clear word of the Lord. Since God is the great king over the whole world, the whole world, and since our God is a God that is in control of all things, again, when he speaks, his voice is not a suggestion, an option, or an opinion. And the only response that we can give to our Lord is, yes, O Lord, what you say, I will obey. But in this scene, we see that Ahab, like that prophet, is a master at ignoring God's clear word. And this is his problem as a king. And the consequences of that is the death of the prophet. It will be the death of Ahab. And that's what we have earned every time we do the very same thing and ignore the clear word of the Lord. In fact, as much as it is a surprise to see how quickly this man was killed by a lion in judgment for his disobedience, and we think of other stories like Uzzah who reached out and touched the ark to prevent it from falling and was immediately struck down dead, or in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira who lied about an offering and they too were immediately struck down dead. Sometimes we look at those stories and we say, wow, that's surprising. But the reality is those stories shouldn't surprise us. 
That's what should happen to all that would dare look at the God of universe and say, no, I'm going to do things my way, not yours. The real surprise is that God allows people like us, you and me, who claim to be in a relationship with him and yet do the very same thing over and over again to continue to live. That in his mercy, he gives us opportunity after opportunity. And what we need to recognize again is that in our disobedience, what we deserve is what this man experienced. But as one of our elders put so very eloquently in our council meeting on Monday when we discussed this passage, instead of the lion taking our lives, the lion gave his life for us. And that's what we celebrate when we approach this table. That the roaring lion stood in our place and where we, because of our disobedience, had earned the wrath of God and his swift judgment against us, Jesus came to this earth and he, though sinless himself, though never having done anything wrong to disobey the clear word of God, he laid down his life and experienced the wrath of God on him so that we never would. Whenever we come to this table, that is one of the things that we celebrate. It's a theory of atonement we call penal substitutionary atonement, that Jesus stood in our place having done no wrong, and he took the penalty for our sins on himself, removing from us the consequences of our sins. But there's also another way of approaching this table and thinking about what Jesus did. It's another theory of atonement called Christus Victor. This idea is to recognize that when Jesus laid down his life, he won the victory over sin and death, and the devil. And going back to my original point, when we celebrate communion, we are actually celebrating the fact that actually the war has already been won. The end of this great battle between the Lord and Satan has already been established. That final victory has been affirmed. But the, the Bible describes our ongoing struggle with sin in the language of a battle, especially in places like Ephesians 6, where we are encouraged to put on the armor of God. And the idea is that even though the war has already been won, I fear that far too often we're like Ahab, where instead of staking our claim and declaring victory over sin in our lives, we continue to flirt with it, continue to place ourselves in tempting situations. And we don't put a stake in the heart of that sin, but we continue to indulge it. And what happens when we do that is exactly what happens in this story. That after we win one battle, the enemy just gears up once again, rebuilds his forces, and comes right back at us. And too often we give in. 
As much as this sermon series is about the struggles that we see in the world and in the church, the constant reality we have to go back is, but where am I and how is my relationship with God? And if I want to see victories won, it has to start with me. That every time the devil comes at me, I have to remember, and this is the point of this communion table, it's not only what happened in the past, but how this changes us to face the future. Knowing that the victory has been won, are we going to fight those battles? Or are we going to give in and allow what was once in our hands to be let go and to continue to afflict us? People of God, may we be those that declare that the victory has been won through Jesus Christ. And therefore, in claiming that victory, not allow sin to continue to reign and rule and to afflict us, but to remind ourselves that as Jesus rose from the grave, all sin, not just its consequences, were defeated. And in claiming that victory, we will continue to fight the battle where our testimony, where our message continues to be at stake. As we approach the table, we, we not only remember that Christ stood in our place, but may we declare that he has won the victory and not allow what was in our grasp to be let go. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, in this great battle that we continue to fight, we confess that we are unworthy soldiers. And far too often, we have done the very things that are easy to recognize in others. We have heard your clear word and yet we've chosen to ignore it and do what our will was over yours. Father, as we recognize that you are the great king of the universe, God over all things, may we serve you and surrender to you as such. And may everything that you command be responded with our obedience and our faith. That's not something we can do on our own, but it is only capable in the victory that you have won for us in rising from the grave. And so may we serve you as your people, declaring that you are the victor. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.